Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back to the Anachronism Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Jeffrey Nitsch to the show. Jeff and I spoke last year about his experience as a composer, as an educator, and as an author. He had written and published a work on entrepreneurship and classical music. And given the last year and the effects of the COVID social response and the lockdowns, I wanted to loop back and get his perspective on the state of music from a composer's perspective as an educator and as a creative soul. And so today we're going to catch up with him on the last year and look ahead as to what happens in classical music in the light of COVID. So welcome back. I'm so pleased to speak with you, Jeff, and I'm anxious to hear from you on a couple of topics. I want to catch up with you on some things we discussed a year ago and hear how some of that went. In particular, you had a very intriguing performance, live performance, uh, if I recall, that involves some headsets and 3D audio and super intriguing. And then this little thing called COVID-19 showed up in the world in February, March, and kind of blew a hole in live performance. And your book, Entrepreneurship, really is got some provocative thoughts about how artists can engage the world. So through that lens and your journey over the last year, I'm just eager to hear from you what you've observed in your teaching capacity, your thought leadership capacity, all of the above, and any projects you've got going on. But just to focus the discussion, uh, I, we'll start and I'll, 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 there's so much to say. So uh, again, I'm super grateful you decided to rejoin me. Thank you for that. And I have been looking forward to this. So let's start with, I really am curious, how did your premiere go? How did all the technical elements? I want to, let's talk about the fun stuff. Yeah, so uh, so thanks for having me back. It's good to see you again. Um, you know, gosh, that seems, you know, it was just a little over a year ago, but it seems like it was, of course, a million years ago. Um, but it, it went extremely well. Uh, it, it was, I was in the cast of the, uh, of the show, but I was, it was not my music that was, uh, that was being premiered, but um, it was my premiere as an actor. So that was, uh, uh, a fun experience. Um, we had just done a whole month-long run at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and uh, had had an amazing experience there. That was really the experience of a lifetime. Also exhausting, uh, performing every single day, uh, except we had two days off in a, in a month-long run, so that was, uh, that was exhausting. But, uh, and then we came home and were able to bring it to Boulder. So, uh, uh, but it went extremely well. We were in the uh, large uh, auditorium at the Dairy Center, the Gordon Gam uh, Theater. And we, we had uh, several sold out performances. Everyone is in a headset. Everybody is experiencing a binaural uh, sound world. And uh, it went extremely well. And we had uh, a great, great audience response. And so it was, it was a nice um, kind of a, a, a postlude to the, the Edinburgh run. And, uh, and then while the Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble was in town, then they also were doing residency activities at University of Colorado and meeting with students. And, and so it was, a, it was a really wonderful week. Tell me on the, the binaural audio really stood out to me as a logistical challenge. 
how did that play out? Did you have the typical technical wrinkles? Did it go smoothly? I mean, that's really a novel thing for every, because every attendee had a headset, right? That's right. That's right. So um, by the time we came to Boulder, we, we had it, we had it down pat. What was really interesting was getting it set up in Scotland because um, if any of your, your listeners are familiar with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, they know that it is it's the largest performing arts festival in the world. There are thousands of performances all over the city. And any given venue has, especially a venue like ours, we were in one of the top venues. And uh, they have a different show you know, every hour. And so uh, it, it is, <laughs> you, you have to get all of your equipment set up and taken down. You have to set up the stage, strike the stage, uh, literally within a matter of, of minutes. And uh, so that became an interesting thing. So we had the, the entire auditorium was wired, uh, cabled, um, but we still had to go through and plug in every headset before the show and then unplug every headset at the end of the show. And we had, we literally rehearsed this in the space um, and got it down so that we could do both the setup and the takedown in about 10 minutes each, uh, including also all of the setting up and taking down of the, uh, uh, of the stuff on stage, the instruments and the, the props and things did it in about 10 minutes. So by the time we got to Boulder, we had it down pretty much pat and we, I don't think we had any, uh, technical problems. It's just a matter of laying all that cable initially is is a little bit difficult. And then you have to go through uh, balancing all of the sound for the space because every space is different. So that certainly took a lot of time. But uh, like I say, by the time we were here, we we, we had it down pretty pretty quickly. When you think back on the experience, both in Edinburgh and here, is there an audience feedback or a comment that really sticks with you that, that's distinctive to the technical innovation you were bringing? So, or maybe a handful of comments that really either were satisfying or, or maybe challenging? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of folks who have never experienced such a thing before, they're, they're dubious about why are we all in headphones? Why is this necessary? You know, and most people are pretty game to, you know, I would I would give a little spiel at the beginning of the show and I would say, um, you know, everyone, please make sure you have your headphones on. It really is necessary. And sometimes there'd be sort of one person who'd be sort of grumpy and refuse to put them on or whatever. Uh, but afterwards, we would we heard repeatedly people say, oh, my gosh, I didn't I'd never experienced anything like this before. It was so immersive. It was so just you're just inside the sound in a way that you never are with just your ears. And oftentimes people would say, so I sort of cheated a little bit in the middle. I took my headphone off for a second to see what it sounded like. And all of a sudden it was just like the floor dropped out. It was, just, it was so pale in comparison. Um, and, and we heard that time and time and time again. I don't think I heard anybody after the show say that they didn't like the experience. And so the general consensus of the feedback was it, its immersive quality and the richness of the sound, just not even a comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. It it's, a, it's a pretty cool thing. And, I, and those of us who were, of course, on stage, we also had, you know, ear monitors so that we could hear that as well. And um, I never got tired of hearing that sound. It was just, it was a sound world 
unlike anything else. Is it something, is it a technique you think you're going to pursue for your ongoing creative work? You think you'll do it again with some different things? Um, I, I know that, that the, the Pittsburgh group is going to continue to work in this, uh, in this, I don't know what to say, in this genre or in this, <laughs> in this way. A absolutely. Yeah. Because it, it really opens up creative possibilities that, uh, that we, that you can't explore it any other way. So for instance, this show originally was not conceived of as a binaural show. It was, it was a show that we kind of retrofitted uh, to work with this kind of technology. And we had done it several years earlier in Pittsburgh, just, you know, as a straight up show. Um, and so really the next step is to begin to create works specifically for the binaural technology. Uh, and so right, right now there's a number of, of composers that, that we're working with to create um, new works that are gonna really exploit this technology to its fullest extent. And that, that's very exciting to see how, where, that, uh, where that goes. So what about you as a, as a creative artist? Are you also exploring that just in your own personal work or just by association with the ensemble? Yeah, I haven't really done it so much in my own work. Um, I'm not hostile to the idea, um, but it, it's 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 something that I haven't quite gotten the inspiration for yet. I think if I had a project and I thought, "Ooh, that would work really, really well for for binaural technology," I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate to dive in. But mm -hmm. it hasn't been so far. It hasn't been something that that I want to pursue. Well, I'll look forward to uh, hearing it. If you do, uh, I'll love to know about it. I really enjoyed sharing uh, your symphonic work in the podcast and uh, hard to do such a sophisticated piece justice on a technical level, but it was really fun for me to give it a close listen. And from one composer to another, just hear some, oh, there you can subtle coloring of some instrumentation and um, really, really enjoyed and the inspiration of it. It was so evocative. So I would look forward to hearing your work uh, in a, in a binaural course. setting. I can only imagine uh, when the muse strikes uh, and, yeah. and you, you have that, please let me know. I would be uh, keenly interested to explore that okay. with you. Um, so creatively then, that that was the last milestone that that I'd really touched base with you on. So from that point, uh, just talk about, you know, we hit a brick wall, but but has, just catch us up. Yeah. So um, so the the last year has been certainly filled with all sorts of activities, uh, scholarship and and some uh, programmatic development at the university with the program that I run. Uh, and so the, the creative work has not been front and center, maybe as much as I would like, but I am working on a, a string quartet project, which is, um, is called the song of the Lorax. If we remember the Dr. Seuss yeah. story of the Lorax, um, I've been very, very interested and passionate about forests and trees ever since I was a kid, I grew up in the woods and uh, it's just, it feels like where I belong. And, um, and so I decided that I wanted to write a piece of music that could in some way help uh, raise awareness around issues of deforestation and, and how that contributes to climate change. And uh, so I got this idea of creating a string quartet that would be part of a larger program. So uh, a program that would have some sound design, um, some forest sounds, some tree sounds be before the piece begins so the audience are coming into a to a, a sound world um and then uh having the piece 
be performed. And then afterwards, there would be a kind of a, not a workshop, but sort of a talk back, a discussion about uh, some education around forest uh, degradation and climate change. And uh, the, the premise behind this idea, which is unproven at this point, uh, because the performance got <laughs> delayed, <laughs> um, but the premise is that if we can get people to um, have an emotional experience first, that then they enter into the conversation about forests in a, in a different kind of headspace, hopefully a little bit more of an open headspace that might actually cause, uh, motivate action to, to do something to address this problem. And uh, so of course that remains to be seen if that's gonna work, but we got a, a grant from the, again, from the Dairy Center uh, to, uh, to put on this show. It was supposed to be happening uh, this January and uh, a few months ago, they said, we, we, we don't have any confidence that we're going to be open in January, which was the right call. Clearly, now we can really see that that's true. Uh, so it's probably going to be pushed back for almost a year uh, before we get to do that. But the upside of that is that I hadn't finished the piece anyway. I was, <laughs> it was one of those things where I was in a little bit of a, a creative jam. And so, um, so it gives me some more time to work on it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So it, it, as you said, it turned out to be uh, maybe creatively fortuitous that there was an yeah. interruption, take some of the heat off. Um, well, I, as you're talking, I'm reminded uh, there's a quote, it's a, available on your website from your book, but I, I really appreciate what you have said here. Entrepreneurship is about enabling art's deepest, most valuable purpose, connecting with people, creating community, challenging us to view the world from new and different perspectives and stirring the soul. Uh, I really like that, how you've characterized the creative work. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to do with Song of the Lorax, in a sense, is to inspire and motivate and use the tool of art and then bring some educational elements. Yeah, exactly. And I love, um, I love collaborating with people. I love things that, that touch on multiple disciplines. And so uh, there's, been reaching out in a number of different directions. I've been working with um, uh, David Haskell, who has written uh, a book about uh, how trees communicate with each other, if you will. So fascinating that that whole yeah, idea. It, it's so it rich. really is. And uh, so he's he supplied me with a bunch of uh, very high resolution recordings that he's made of the of the sounds that trees make when they're pumping fluids up and down their trunks and, and roots growing and things like this. Um, and so we're, we're looking to create some sort of sound insulation around that to be the, the, the prelude to the piece. Uh, and also working with some folks at, uh, at the university who are experts on trees and deforestation to help develop the, the sort of the curricular piece of it. So ultimately I'm really excited about this and I think the delay maybe will result in a better product anyway so i'm i'm not mourning that too much but um so tell me where when that's ready knowing that there's uh it's a work in progress uh, where will that be premiered where will people ideally where will folks be able to encounter it yeah so it's going to be at the the premiere is going to be at the dairy center here in boulder um but what's nice about it is that the 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 piece is being written for three different string quartets, all of whom have come through the graduate string quartet residency program at CU Boulder, 
where they study with the Takash Quartet and so forth. Uh, so two of these quartets are in North America. One is more East Coast, uh, the Tesla Quartet. One is here in Colorado, the Altius uh, String Quartet. And then the other, the Orava Quartet is in Australia. And so all, all three of those groups, the Altius is gonna do the Boulder premiere, but all three of those groups will be performing it um, in places yet to be determined. But one of the things that I hope will happen from this is that the piece can be done in a couple of different settings. It could be done just as a concert piece by itself with these groups when they're, when they're performing a regular concert, but it also gives those groups opportunities to do things like, you know, at the Natural History Museum or uh, at, a, at a fundraising event for an environmental group or in schools. And so the, the, the idea of writing this for them is that it, it, it could benefit them as well to give them opportunities to do certain kinds of programming um, where there's usually money to be had in those things for them as well. So it's, a, it, it's hopefully will be a win-win and be played in a lot of different kinds of settings. That's fantastic. Well, look forward to updates on that. And, and again, we'll be eager to share as you're ready to share updates and, and schedules and all of that. We'll, we'll get that word out. Um, that's exciting. Um, with that, I want to pivot for a minute. So COVID and particularly your role as an educator, as a, a leader, a thought leader on the domain of entrepreneurship for the classical musician. Classical music is anchored in live performance to a large degree. That's its pedigree, that's its history. It, that The training is all very much oriented toward that performance venue. And that just got turned off, roughly, uh, globally, uh, with some uh, maybe rare exceptions. And it's unclear at this point when it will come back. I think it will. I, I think it's unlikely to be gone forever. But do you think, A, uh, that something radical has transformed or something structural will have changed in our society that causes a classical musician to revisit the needs of entrepreneurship for a new world? Do you, what do you think for timing? What does a post-COVID classical entrepreneur and the world of the business of class, just what are your thoughts? I'm no doubt you've been thinking quite a bit about this. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and it's such a big, that's such a big question with a lot of different moving parts. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that live performance will absolutely come back as a part of our, our culture. It's just too deeply embedded in who we are as people. Um, and, and when you think about music performance being in every culture through every period of history, it, it plays such a fundamental role in creating community and, and, uh, supporting uh, rituals of all kinds. And it's just, it, it's not going away. It, it, it's temporarily gone, but it absolutely will be back. I'm sure of that. That said, it's impossible not to accept that the world has gone through a terrible shock and that when there are great disruptions in, a, in a, any kind of marketplace, including the arts marketplace, that there are opportunities to try new things and to innovate and to come up with new paradigms. And, and I hope that that will happen in the classical music world. Um, I say I hope because there are a number of really substantial barriers to fundamental changes happening, one of which is that, especially if we're talking about symphony orchestras, 
they are generally tied to these big concert halls. Uh, they are they involve so many different uh, musicians, a large number of musicians, and therefore tied to large venues and things like that. So um, it's it's not going to be easy to just reinvent that. Uh, and then what do we do with all these concert halls, right? So I, I think that in some ways, the largest organizations are going to have the hardest time because, because they are so rooted in the existing way of doing things and it's not easy to change. I think chamber music groups, individual, you know, the, the piano soloist who is able to just go out and, and sort of shape the experience however she wants to do it, you know, they're going to have the most luck, I think, coming up and trying with new ways to reach audiences in a, in a post-COVID time because it's, it's just more flexible, it's more nimble. So charting that course, the large ensembles, I think everything you've said, the logistics of a large orchestral concert are, are antithetical really to what uh, restrictions on social gatherings are going to, so that's a given. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talk about innovations, and particularly these large organizations are going to have to think some things through. Oh, what? Knowing that every crystal ball is blurry, that's fine. I'm just curious if we were five years from now and there's a vaccine, highly probable, one has been announced and, and it seems it's, it's astonishing work of science actually that has yielded a vaccine so fast. Yeah. Uh, very, very impressive. So we think that'll change. Is there something constitutionally though with our digital society and the way we consume media, not outside of the traditional classical, um, you know, if you had to prognosticate a little bit, are there some lasting changes or trends? Nothing, nothing's black and white. It won't be binary on or off, but there's going to be a center of gravity or maybe not. Do you think we'll just kind of go back to how we were? We'll get through the vaccine. And what do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of each. I think that we will go back to the, some of the traditional ways of experience live music. Um, but I also think that this will be an impetus for finding new ways to use technology to create an enhanced experience. Um, I haven't uh, experienced this yet, but the one of the quartets that I'm writing this piece for, the Tesla Quartet, um, they've started to work with a software uh, company to essentially create a artificial reality kind of experience that has live music in it and then you know you can sort of sit in the concert hall in this sort of virtual concert hall and while i don't think sitting in a virtual concert hall is very interesting that has potential for all sorts of interesting kinds of things you know for instance if if we did the song of the lorax with one of these things you could be in a forest somewhere you know you could uh and and the way that the technology is evolving in the the artificial reality and and uh, is getting so sophisticated so quickly that it's hard to imagine that those kinds of experiences won't become more and more common uh, perhaps linked with something like binaural technology as well uh, so so I, I do think that those trends are going to continue um, and again, I think it'll be chamber music groups that are the most likely to, to engage in those kinds of things. One of the things that, that COVID has shown me is that for all of the downsides of 
Zoom and and remote teaching or remote. I've, I've just come from a remote conference, right? Where we, which was, you know, very, very different from gathering in a hotel and having all the conversations in the hallway that you have when you go to a conference. You know, this was obviously much, much different, but um, that there are some upsides to this. That now you could, uh, you can bring in anybody from around the world. You could, uh, we were, uh, we have a research group on campus where we exchange papers that we're working on in entrepreneurship. And we were talking uh, just yesterday about who do we want our next guest to be? And somebody said, well, how about we get this guy who's like in Berkeley and is this a great figure in the, in the business world? Um, and I know him, he'll, he'll call in, you know, and we can, we can have this great session with this guy that otherwise we'd have to fly him in and like all this. So I think in that aspect opens up all kinds of possibilities too, in terms of reaching people, in terms of leveraging resources. So, uh, me and my colleagues at Michigan State University and University of Michigan, over the summer, we were presenting some uh, workshops collectively. And so with relatively little cost, we were able to reach students at three universities in a way that we never could before. So I, I think those kinds of things are revealing themselves to us as being full of potential, even though the technology still hasn't quite caught up, especially the audio technology, you know, this problem with latency and the, and the problem with, with getting a really high quality uh, audio experience going. But the technology, they'll, they'll figure it out. They'll catch up eventually. You know. And it's interesting that the, we see this in other areas that technology is, it can liberate resources to a larger marketplace very efficiently. Mm -hmm. That's what it does. So when you describe uh, conversations or, or scholarship that you want to engage globally, the the presumptive engagement with scholars particularly, but in other areas too, would be in person. When that's gone, and now it's all digital, you've created almost a liquidity of the talent pool globally. And yeah. that has there's a bug and there's a feature. It's got a little bit of both sides to it uh, uh -huh. because that, that consolidation or that, that liquidity of, of talent and personality we see in other areas often makes it even harder for a, an aspiring musician, a local musician, that idea of, of finding your foothold when the stakes are now global, they're not local anymore. What are your thoughts on that? There, you know, it can go good, it can go bad. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a that's a great point. And it, it is something I've thought about. I think that um, really that's where thinking entrepreneurially becomes even more important than ever, because for that young emerging uh, artist, performer, composer, wh whatever they happen to be, uh, is they're going to have to start local. They have to be aware of what's going on in their community. They have to find ways to engage with their local community, uh, whether that be through the local museum or the local arts center or collaborating with non-arts organizations maybe again this this thing with with the the trees and the environmental work you know if i live in boulder so there is a there's a sensibility for being educated about the environment and being responsive to environmental issues because that's part of the community that i live in another community might have something else that is a defining characteristic of that community and 
it's the artist's job to look for ways for art to to be exercised in those contexts and you can start locally and and that's how you're going to be building i think uh, a track record and an audience that then you're ready to to begin to broadcast that more broadly so when and, and it's interesting what you've described it's almost a, a counter pattern or an anti-pattern to this movement of the global platform of social media and large you know shared global communication it's almost i wouldn't say counterintuitive but it would be not your first assumption as everything's moving globally it sounds like what you're talking about is move intimately locally is that yes. a fair assessment? yeah that yeah that that is what i'm saying and uh, and to, to to support that argument i would say um that COVID, COVID has taught us something else, which is that the that Zoom or doing a virtual conference, yes, it has a lot of pluses, but it is still missing this really core essential element, which again is the conversation in the hallway. It's the, um, you know, yesterday with this conference that I was at, these these folks are not just my colleagues; some of them are very very dear friends, and it was it was distressing to not be able to hug them when I see them, you know, or, or to, you know, to not be there in person. And we, we see this over and over again. It's like everyone was doing the zoom happy hours, you know, early on in the, in the lockdown, it was a great way to stay in touch. It was, it was a lifeline for, for many of us, but now we're like, I don't want, I don't, the zoom happy hour doesn't do it for me anymore. I want to see you, you know? And so I, I think that, that we're never going to, lose that need for in-person human contact. And so, yes, while we have global possibilities that we have never had before, um, the the need for the pers- in-person, interpersonal interaction is still going to be there. And I think that that's really good news, especially for concert music, because it means that um, it, it's not just about being able to play the music record it, send it around the world, everybody can listen to it. That's, that's fine. But the live music experience is still a unique thing. And I think as we become more digital, as we become more sort of uh, global, um, that kind of in-person intimate experience is going to become more important than ever, not less. What comes to mind as you speak about that is the idea, the economic reality that markets are oriented to manage scarcity and the more scarce something becomes the higher its price its perceived value increases with scarcity and what you what what makes me contemplate is there a potential that the scarcity of in-person interaction will make it more special is that maybe a bright spot yes no i I think that's exactly right and Again, all of these issues have, you know, on the other hand, the, the flip side, right, which is so the, the issue around scarcity um, in a world where it's easier than ever to, to share content around the world. Um, something that I think actually has been a mistake on the part of a lot of artists during COVID is they're, they're giving away their content for free. And, and that is working in the exact opposite of this of the scarcity argument, right? That is that is teaching our audiences that 
that there, there is an infinite supply of music and, or, and any other sorts of media and much of it I don't have to pay for. So why, why should I pay for it? And I, I think that that's a, that's a problem that, that we, we've got to face as well. Um, I appreciate that, that the Metropolitan Opera, you know, were doing those free broadcasts of some, some stuff out of their archives. And, and it was a, it was sort of a, a, a gesture of uh, generosity to the world, you know, during a time when we needed it. And, and that's great. But um, for a lot of, of artists who are really, truly struggling just to pay their rent right now, um, we, we have to recognize that monetization of these things is appropriate and necessary. On that topic, uh, and uh, really, I appreciate your point of view on these things. It's provocative for me, and it, it makes me think of the reality of uh, the purchase of a, of a good or a service. We, we talk in economic terms, and, and uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in free markets, actually. I think it's, a, it's got a moral foundation, and it's this. When I pay you for your services, I, that gives me a chance to acknowledge the value that service has to me. A free service, I have no means to do that. And in fact, when you give your stuff away, you're not affording people to invest a value decision. They can be completely passive. And to your point, um, it seems like it's charitable. It seems like it's good. It, it actually is, I, I believe very strongly, it's sub-optimizing your artistic conversation with that person because putting money on the table is not just a crass, but it's not a stack of greenbacks. That's them saying, this experience is more valuable to me than whatever else I would use that money for, buying a Twinkie or whatever else it is. You've robbed them of the opportunity to, to have a value exchange and that's very human and it's very personal. Uh, what do you think about that? No, I, I agree completely. And I think that uh, I hope that one of the other things that will come out of this uh, time that we're going through right now is that people will see the value in the arts in a way that maybe they haven't before and will be willing once the economy starts to get better and you know we have a little bit of that disposable income that they will be more open to to paying for the art that they consume because if you talk to anybody about how are you surviving during pandemic oh well i'm you know i watched the hamilton thing on disney i've been i've been streaming stuff on netflix i've got this this great new you know playlist that i listen to every day and that gets me through the day like it's like okay isn't that interesting the arts are what are sustaining us during this time and 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 that's not just the you know us elitist classical musicians or whatever sort of stuff you want it's everybody and so if that's true then um then that's a really valuable thing and we should be willing to to pay for it when we can i think it's interesting and i'd love for you to touch on this in your role as an educator too of young musicians uh there is that artist's eagerness to share and and if they and i think artists sometimes naively think that the cost of a ticket is the barrier to why people aren't engaging them. And, and, I, and I think you've said it well, 
that it is um, in in a almost a desperation to connect as artists because that's part of the artistic impulse is we're we're really striving to connect to give it away to make it free a it doesn't necessarily mean your engagements improved you just have a lot more casual people who are frankly, maybe as indifferent to you now as they were when you were charging. They just wouldn't have paid to come in. And that idea of understanding the inherent value, and, and, and you've noted something I observed as well, in a time of lockdown, when we are deprived of human interaction, the arts is tantamount to the next thing to replace that. It's the next best proxy for being with your friends, and, and it's often a companion to that social time, but it can become a proxy connection to humans, how enormously valuable that is, far beyond lesser you know, goods and services, and yet we would give it away. Um, yeah. How do you counsel young musicians to uphold the value of their craft and the value of their work? Yeah, well, it's, that, that message hasn't changed from what I always say to them, which is that, yes, when you are first starting out and you're trying to get yourself established, that you might have to do some things for little or no money um, because you get other things of value from it you because you make a great connection with other musicians or you know or you get you're banking your 10,000 hours in order to master uh, your, your craft you know um, but that but that pretty pretty quickly they need to get into a mindset that their work is valuable and they should be paid for it and that if somebody is not willing to pay you for your work then, um, then you shouldn't be doing business with them. You know, then they don't value you enough. Um, and I find oftentimes it's about simply educating people. We, we run a gig service at the College of Music where the fields request that come in from the community. We're not doing that right now, but uh, you know, and oftentimes someone will say, well, I want someone to play for my daughter's wedding and you know, is 50 bucks and and some food at the reception worth it and i'm like well how long are they going to be playing well it's a three-hour reception i'm like no this is you know the the, the going rate that i quote for our student musicians is a hundred dollars per person per hour and sometimes they're like oh my goodness and i was like well i'm sorry you know if you can find someone that will do this for 50 bucks um good on you but you're probably going to get what you pay for and um, you know and i and i tell the students that as well if they're negotiating and, uh, you know, I think that, I think generally speaking, students are pretty good at, at realizing that that's the case. Yeah. And it comes down having, reflecting back on my own time as a student musician and, and that tension of, well, I don't have a gig at all. So I either do nothing Friday night or I make the 50 bucks Friday night, you yeah. know, and, and being able, but having the, the conviction of the value of, of that time and realizing um, that you make the $100 for the hour and it's not just for what you do in that hour, it's for the 100 hours that came before it so that you could play that in an hour and you can do it. And, and understanding what someone's paying when they're buying an hour of an entertainer's time, they're actually paying for all the stuff that never got paid for, which was the okay. development of craft and skill. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And it sounds yeah. like you encourage your students that way too. Oh, absolutely. I you know We talk about when you're trying to calculate either how much you should ask to be paid or trying to decide if, if the offer that has been extended to you is a, is a good offer. You've got to think about 
all of those things, you know, is this going to be something you're going to have to practice a lot? Is this a new piece of music that's really hard? Or is it something you can pull off the shelf and walk into the gig and just do? That's, that is a, a factor to consider, you know, how far are you going to have to drive? Are they going to give you mileage? Uh, you know, if it's a, if it's a gig in Colorado Springs and they're, and they're sort of cheapening the offer, it's like, I don't know if it's worth taking all the time to drive down there, the wear and tear on the car, like, like all of those things have to be factored into figuring out what the gig costs you. And then you can make a, a more informed decision about what you should be charging. Because if you don't know what it costs you, then you're, you might even be losing money in a sense. Yeah, what a wonderful service you're providing to the young students. I, I hope they hear you fully uh, and, and avoid the temptations of <laughs> giving their work away. It's it's yeah. it's fantastic to have an advocate like you for them to to think this through because it's easy to get confused in the passions yeah. of, of of being an artist. So as we're we're kind of wrapping up, and I certainly uh, want to respect your time, but I, I, I thought the last question I'd ask is just opening the Florida, what's on your mind, just, and particularly for the people on, who listen to this podcast, many of them are just exploring classical music. They're not necessarily an aficionado. They're just, this is a different way to enter, dip their toe in the water, especially living tradition of music, your work, others anything you'd offer and whether it's COVID related or not, just looking ahead. Mm. Let me think about that for a minute. It's open um, mic night. <laughs> open mic night. <laughs> well, I think I would encourage them to think about what role music has been playing for them during this, this time. And if that has in fact brought a, a greater appreciation for it, then then to encourage them to put that uh, that into action, whether that be uh, supporting their local arts organization with an extra donation, whether that be, um, you know, some of these concerts are doing pay what you can, which is kind of nice during a time of of economic struggle. It's 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 recognizing that the that there is value in this thing, but also recognizing that there are a lot of people who are really really struggling right now. So. If, but if you're able to go to a pay what you can show, be generous, you know, um, certainly uh, not to get political, but but the the relief packages that have come through uh, over the last, you know, six, nine months have not really done much for arts organizations and, and individual artists, particularly the freelancing artists. It was very, very difficult for them to get any of the pay tech protection uh, stuff that was going through. And so, um, you know, to the extent that they maybe have uh, the ear of their congressman or, or someone like that to, to try to advocate uh, for the arts to play a bigger role in the next, hopefully the next relief package that's coming up because um, the arts are a multi, multi-billion dollar driver in our economy. It's not just about feeling good and, and you know, having uh, the solace of putting out a nice piece of music in the evening or whatever, it, it really is a, a huge economic force in our country. And, and it has, like any other uh, driver in our economy, this huge ripple effect. And for, again, freelance artists in particular, they've been hit doubly hard because not only are the, their performances have been canceled and they can't do what, what they've been trained to do, but 
most freelancers, if they have a fallback job, it's likely to be in the service industry. You know, they're, they're going to be a server in a restaurant. They're going to be a bartender. They're going to be uh, a, a massage therapist or, you know, they're, they're, those are the kinds of service gigs that they would do to supplement their performing income. And those have gone away too. So <laughs> it's really been very, very hard on the people in the arts. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there needs to be more awareness about that. And for those who can help to try to help the artists in your sphere. So a call to action to yeah. value the art that I think the the data are in, people really deeply value the art. So act yeah. accordingly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you think, uh, just one follow-up question to that. Do you think there's a possibility that we would see a, a blighting of art talent as a result of this year? It's been almost a year now. Um, not quite a year. Um, do you think that there will be a lasting effect on the talent pool, on the participation? Um, or do you think it's something we can weather and, and we'll turn back from? Well, I I think the answer is, is yes to both of those. I, I think that there will be some, I'm sure there will be some, who will be just like, I don't think I can come back for this. I, I, I don't want to live with that much uncertainty. I'm going to go get a stable day job that I can count on, you know, and I'm sure there will be folks who do that. Um, but I'm also pretty sure that the talent stream that's coming up will continue to replenish as it always does. Um, my, my students are not really dissuaded very much. They are, they are, in fact, in some ways, many of them say, I realize more than ever how important it is for me to be doing what I'm doing as a musician. And I'm more inspired than ever to go out there and, and try to make a difference. And, and so that, that is immensely uh, hopeful and also kind of humbling that they're taking that kind of positive attitude about this situation. Um, I did, uh, did a survey a few weeks ago of all of our students about the impact of COVID on how they're looking at their career. And, you know, of, of 90 some odd responses, just within our own college of music, there was only one respondent who said they were, they were thinking about leaving music. Only one. And, and that just, I, frankly, shocked me. So, you know, yes, I think there will be fallout in the near term, but we have no shortage of amazing talent out there. And I think that, that uh, after that initial disruption, we'll we'll find a way forward again. That's a hopeful note. And I think your exploration too with technology as an augmentation or a new tool in the toolkit, it, it'll be exciting to see younger artists adapting those tools in a way that someone like me, who's a little little longer in the tooth, as they say, uh, yeah. maybe a little less creative and imaginative. And it'll be wonderful to see how the artistic impulse of humanity is not not affected by this and it will it will find its voice it sounds like absolutely that's because it, it always has it always has in every time well jeff i want to thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing your thoughts you're a deep thinker a provocative thinker and love the insights i'll be anxious to hear about your work song of the lorax please keep me posted on that and i, I would love to share that with yes, this audience please. and i want people to encounter that wherever they can and if you you know, the multimedia, all of the above. But thank you so much for the graciousness oh. of your time and the lively discussion. It's my pleasure to have been here. Good to see you again. Likewise. Take care. You too.
And that wraps up my conversation with composer, educator, and author Jeffrey Nitsch. I hope you'll join me next time on the Anachronism Podcast when I'll again be diving into the world of the orchestral tradition. I hope you'll join me. Until then, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, uh, various social media, or send me an email at salutations at gustavhoyer.com.